This is episode two of Prescription Advocacy. I'm Ariel Droster. And I'm Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murs. And today we're talking about an issue that has been uh, been very close to my heart in the last few weeks, which is the return to school. And uh, we're going to be speaking to a teacher and a union activist named Laura McCoy, who has a lot to say about school reopening. Now, Neely, in your office, what have you been hearing from your patients about the return to school? My patients have been trolling me to find out what I think about return to school. And I can't, um, I can't say kind of more clearly to people that they need to be sending their kids to public school and, and not doing these pods and not doing, you know, opting up for private school. But, but I also know that, you know, every time they change the date that people are going back, um, the, or that the kids are going back to school, then parents are struggling. They're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with their kids. Parents are phoning me and asking, what are they supposed to do if their child has asthma? What are they supposed to do if their child has any kind of special needs? Are they going to be okay in school? Are there going to be um, issues for teachers? My patients who are teachers are phoning me and saying they have asthma and are they going to be safe in school? So I'm kind of getting bombarded from both sides, from the teachers and from the parents and the kids asking asking about what um, September is going to be like. And I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, except to say that we need to be supporting public education. And we are going to find out as we return to school how it goes. There's, you know. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And uh, as our conversation with Laura McCoy will demonstrate, teachers are in the dark, parents are in the dark. And here we are six months into this pandemic and school boards are scrambling. So I just got an email two days ago saying that school is going to start sometime between September 8th and 18th. That's a That's a pretty huge window. Uh, My own activism on this file started in earnest this summer when at first the school board was going to only have a couple of days a week of school for elementary school kids and there was a huge uprising about that and and more recently it's been focusing on uh, trying to get class sizes smaller and proper filtration systems into schools and it's it's bananas that we're doing this in September, but we're doing it. And uh, there have been a few updates since we did we, we recorded this interview. Um, as you'll hear in this interview, I mentioned the need for a federal transfer to uh, help support provinces and school boards in making schools safer. And that actually did happen last week. So I don't know if I was, uh, you know, a little bit prescient here, but uh, the federal government did announce a two billion dollar transfer to provinces specifically to help with school reopening. Again, very late in the game but it is somewhat of a relief. So as you listen to this conversation, you should know that activism and advocacy by teachers, by doctors, by parents, by students themselves, it is working. So uh, we really encourage our listeners to keep contacting your member of parliament, your MPP, your school board, and find out what you can do to help with the advocacy for public education, because I do think the outcry is working and it is very late in the game. We certainly don't blame you if you're worried about sending your own children to the classroom right now because there are a lot of unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. And if you listen to the podcast and you want more information, we'll give you some links at the end that will tell you where to go for our website. And uh, Laura McCoy has information that that she'll share with you. And uh, of course, the information is always changing. So by the time we release this, it may have changed yet again. Yeah. So. Remember to follow us at uh, RX Advocacy on Twitter, and we'll make sure that we share the most up-to-date information and any updates on this interview after you listen to it. So, Laura, 
tell us about yourself. Who are you? <laughs> Who were you before COVID began? Um, I'm a teacher uh, and a parent. I live in Toronto. I've been teaching for 21 years and I have two teenage children and I'm an activist and I've been involved in various education related um, activities and union activities for basically all of my teaching career. So what is it like for you these days, Laura? It's been actually really busy uh, this summer. I mean, certainly when the schools shut down in March, there was a bit of a scramble in trying to figure out what we were doing teaching. You know, how are we going to manage that? And last year I was teaching ESL. So I had a bunch of students who, um, you know, it was hard for them to be engaged in the classroom anyway because of the language barrier and there were struggles getting online um, and connecting with the families and making sure they had the technology. So all of that kind of stuff was a bit of a scramble and, and a struggle for all of us, really. Mm -hmm. And then since the end of the school year, over the summer, I've been really busy with a couple of different organizations fighting for appropriate funding for back to school to make the safe September. Um, so I've been working with the Ontario Education Workers United, which is a grassroots group of education workers from various different unions. Um, and we work really closely with the Ontario Parent Action Network and Ontario Families for Public Education. And we've been doing a lot of um, social media and actions to put pressure on the government to come up with the funding and come up with a reasonable plan. And, um, you know, they haven't yet, which is incredibly frustrating. And we're getting to, you know, so close to the beginning of school, school opening that it's, it's starting to feel, uh, you know, like a little bit of a panic, <laughs> honestly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but that's basically what I've been doing for the summer. I hear you. I, uh, mm -hmm. so I have an eight year old daughter who's going into grade three and, I uh, started re-engaging with ad advocacy on education when the Ottawa District School Board first announced that it would be doing some sort of a hy hybrid model for elementary school. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Hundreds of parents just flipped out about this. And uh, yeah. since then, I've been doing a lot of advocacy, both with the school board and the province. I'm curious to hear from you. What do you think are the main sticking points right now for you as a teacher in terms of what you think you will need to feel safe as a teacher going back into schools? For me, really the number one is the class size. I am appalled that we are going back with just regular class sizes. I think that's unbelievable. And I, I've always thought that the class sizes were much too big anyway. And, and um, I mean, my way of teaching is very much... Um, you know, engaging with the students and building community and getting to know them really well. And I find that a very difficult thing when you've got 34 kids in the class. And I feel like, you know, it's hard to have those kinds of personal relationships. And I think it's hard for the kids in a really big crowd. And especially in a time like this, it seems so, so strange to me that we would expect to go back in a really big crowded classroom when you can't even have that situation in a store or a restaurant, like it's not acceptable to have 34 people crowded together in a restaurant where the windows don't open, but for some reason it's acceptable for the school. So definitely the class size is number one. Um, I think the things about PPE we can probably manage, like those are not, like I think the kids should wear masks and I think 
I will wear a mask. I'd like to wear a mask and a shield, but I think those are not insurmountable. I think ventilation is a really big problem. And I know in Toronto, we have this massive backlog of um, repairs that the school buildings tend to be quite old and um, many don't have appropriate ventilation. And I think, uh, you know, with some money and some creativity, we could definitely deal with that. We could have, um, you know, a lot of outdoor learning and we could have different buildings, community buildings available and parks. And, you know, I've always thought they should close down the streets around the school so we could have the outdoor street space for, for learning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those are the things I would like to see. Yeah. To, to feel safe and feel confident going back. Is there a sense of going across boundaries, geography, political boundaries to for teachers kind of around the world to be um, advocating together? Or is it really like in the silo of Ontario? And I mean, I know that it's provincially funded, but is there a sense of yeah. teachers advocating together? Um, well, I mean, there's definitely a sense across Ontario, I mean, because we have provincial education Mm -hmm. associations and across Canada, we kind of keep track of what's happening in a sense. And and there is some connection, I would say, between like BC and Ontario, there tends to be a little bit more connection. And I don't know if that's just like political similarities or union similarities. Mm -hmm. Um, And we certainly look to other unions and Um, You know, we've been looking to some of the school reopenings in, you know, Northern Europe, for example, where they have had some success. And there are some um, unions in the states that we have uh, some connection with through labor notes. So some of the left caucuses of some of the big unions like Chicago and L.A., we have, you know, little connections with. And certainly there's a feeling that we're... uh, all in a similar situation. I mean, the States is definitely worse because their rate of COVID is much higher mm-hmm. in many of the mm-hmm. big cities. Um, but we certainly do connect in terms of organizing strategies and things like mm-hmm. that. It's interesting that you say that because when we were first having the conversation at the school board in Ottawa, um, you know, something we, mm-hmm. I as a parent definitely pointed out was like, look, okay, if, if I was in Florida or Texas where they have 10 to 15,000 new COVID infections a day, I would not be advocating to open schools. Mm -hmm. But um, given Mm -hmm. that our lockdowns were quite successful from a public health perspective, my question was, what do we have to do to make schools safe? Because it looks like it is a possibility where we live. Um, I don't know about you, but what I'm hearing amongst all my parent friends is incredible frustration that um, the Ontario government and actually governments in other provinces in Canada decided to open things like indoor dining Mm -hmm. establishments and bars before we had a safe school plan in place. And now we're already seeing COVID rates going up before we've secured safe classrooms Mm -hmm. for teachers and students. Yeah, that is an unbelievable frustration for me too. I can't believe that those were the choices. Well, I mean, I can believe it because you look at the government and of course they've made those Mm -hmm. choices, but obviously I think they're the wrong choices. And I, I feel like, I feel too like we should go back to school. I mean, I I think public education is incredibly important and the kids need to be in school and they need to be in school safely. Um, And I want to go back and I want my daughter to go back, but it's just um, kind of unbelievable to me, as you say, that they've opened up these other things that then put at risk the school reopening. And you wonder about the choices that the government made, like how much of that is 
purposeful. And I do feel like there is a government that doesn't value public education and they don't know much mm-hmm. about it. Um, so I do feel like there's ideological choices there that they've made that, um, you know, that didn't put schools first, that didn't put kids first. I'm going to bring up something that's become a very controversial topic in my circles, which is these, these homeschool education pods <laughs> that, <laughs> that, we, yeah. that we are seeing <laughs> popping up, uh, certainly in affluent cities in the U.S. and now in Canada, yeah. parents who are saying, look, I don't yeah. think that the system is going to be safe enough for my child, so therefore I'm going to hire a teacher or a tutor and have mm-hmm. small group learning in my home, sometimes using the, the school board's uh, virtual resources, sometimes opting out completely. Uh, can you tell me what your mm-hmm. reaction is to this, this whole pod idea? And one of the joys of public education is that it is the whole community and everybody's in there together. And I mean, our cities are, you know, unevenly distributed. Like there are areas that are much more racialized or where there's more poverty in there there's more affluent areas. So it's not, you know, any given public school is not really truly a mixture of the whole city, but, but it does bring everybody together um, to a certain extent. And I think the pods really undermine that aspect of public education. And my preference would be for those people who have the wherewithal to form a pod is that they would lobby the government really hard to actually fund education appropriately so that we could all go back safely. And, and there are people who can, you know, organize things and fight for things that maybe they could organize and fight for public education so that everybody could have the benefit of a small yeah. group. It's been frustrating because when I point out that, look, even if you have to make an individual decision for your child, that action has consequences and the consequence is inequity. And I've got, you know, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of times when white people are confronted with, you know, accusations of racism or, you know, when any of us are told that we're being called out for something that the immediate reaction is to get defensive, but I am seeing a lot of defensiveness mm-hmm. among parents who are making this choice yeah. and then complete unwillingness to recognize that even though they feel they may need to make this decision that it does have wider consequences and it makes them part of the problem. My, my own patients have been telling me that they're, they're following me on Twitter because they want to know what I'm saying about education because they want to know whether they should send their kids. And I keep saying to people, like, you need to send your kids to school in September. We need to support public education. Uh, and then I'm hearing back from some parents that their plan is to say that they're going to send their kids to school, but then not send them. So my response, and and Laura, I'm curious to know what you think, but my response is to say, look, you have to actually send them because we won't know what's going to happen in the classroom. If people don't send their children, It, it won't help even to put pressure on the government to say, look, we need more space. If half the people uh-huh. who have registered their kids just keep their kids at home for, you know, the first month of school. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I don't actually understand that strategy. And I'm thinking maybe people don't quite understand how school funding works or mm-hmm. something. I think that there's a feeling that if they say they're coming, the school will fund for a certain number of kids and then they won't come, but still the school will have funding, but the classes will be smaller. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Cause otherwise I can't really understand why you would mm-hmm. do that, but I don't think that will actually happen. I mean, it's going to be a bit of a mess the first couple of weeks anyway, just trying to figure out who's actually coming and who's online and things like that. In Toronto, are they are like, will all of the um, areas of the curriculum still be, taught are they doing music are they doing arts are they um 
You know what? We don't fully know at this point. I know they're currently right at this very moment in a board meeting where they're trying to make some decisions because they did have a plan that was rejected by the government. So then they had to kind of go back to the Mm. drawing board. And so I don't know. I mean, it looks like probably a teacher will be responsible for a cohort, otherwise known as a class <laughs> of students. Um, <laughs> yeah, this word cohort has taken on mysterious properties, but um, it does look like a, a, a teacher will have a class and will be required to teach, you know, all of the curriculum to that class, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of possibly, say, French or music or whatever might be your prep mm-hmm. subject. Um, I teach at a school that is fully rotary. It's a grade seven, eight school, and it basically runs like yeah. a high school. But I think it looks like we will have to reorganize and have each teacher with their own class. And at this moment, uh, we don't really know how prep delivery or some of those specialized subjects will so, work. So, so teachers so, yeah. who would in the past have only been science or only history are now going to have to be able to teach all subjects. Yeah. So <laughs> again, it's one of those things that there's no easy answer to. Like I, I teach mostly art, but I have actually taught every subject. So I feel quite comfortable doing that. But uh, not everybody has done that. You know, I mean, some teachers have been teaching science for 20 years or design and tech or music. And that's really their passion. And that's really their area of expertise. And it's going to be a difficult transition, especially with so little notice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that is the super frustrating aspect of this that we could have been planning oh five gosh. months ago. Don't even get yeah, me started. You know, but now I know. As soon as schools close. Right. So yeah, if, I, sure. if I was magically prime minister, even though education <laughs> is a provincial uh, responsibility. Uh, like imagine if we had actually had the vision to have like a teach for Canada program where there was a direct transfer to provinces for the purely for the purpose of making schools safe, where you could recruit every teacher mm-hmm. off the supply list, every student teacher, you know, yeah. guarantee small classes across the country, have a fed- federally regulated class size guarantee. You know, it's the kind mm-hmm. of thing that would make the provinces mm-hmm. go a little bit bananas. But at the end of the day, that's the kind of national vision we need for education during a pandemic. And nobody has proposed it. Yeah. And it's so frustrating. Yeah, very frustrating. And when I saw that there was money that was going to be transferred federally from the federal to the provinces, whenever that was a month ago or something, I was really hopeful that there would be some specific money dedicated to education so that there would be a directive, you know, hire teachers for this. And then, you know, when there wasn't, of course, the provincial government then is left to just do whatever they want to do. And, and that was clearly not to fund yeah. education. Although now, so mm-hmm. here's, I got some criticism though, because last week when there was a further funding announcement on ventilation and other measures and then also the directive which of course is kind of ridiculous to use reserve funds I said okay well that second announcement would not have happened without parent pressure it's not enough but we are seeing some movement I agree with you that it's incredibly frustrating that it's happening so late in the game but I also agree with what Mm -hmm. Neely is saying that if our kids are in school and they're experiencing class sizes that are too big or situations that we think are unacceptable it's time to just keep pressuring Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are a government that rules by perceived public opinion, I guess, or something. But um, absolutely. Like, I haven't given up yet. And I know we're only a couple of weeks, but they have changed based on pressure from parents and teachers, although they have such a hatred of the unions. But but, but 
parent pressure is probably the big key there, um, that they have made some changes. And I feel like it is absolutely not the time to give up, that we need to keep pressuring them. And there is some possibility that they might come up with some more money or some new ideas. Maybe yeah. um, just to wrap up, one of the things that um, you could talk about Laura, is you started off by saying that mm -hmm. you're an activist. What are you seeing in changes yeah. in the way that people are act being activists now? Since the shutdown, it has grown. And um, we have, so I'm part of Ontario Education Workers United, which is basically a grassroots group of, of education workers, so teachers, but also support staff and custodians and ECEs and those kinds of things. And our organization has really grown. And I've seen... Um, people who would not necessarily have been active in the past, really stepping up and being quite interested in doing something to change the situation. And also um, joining with other organizations and sort of broadening the scope of activism. So we are an education organization, um, but we've had really strong connections with uh, like Fairness in 15, so that we're fighting for paid sick days for parents and for everybody, mm -hmm. but parents and caregivers in particular, because we know that's something that impacts the school system when parents can't stay home. And so they have to send their kids to school sick. So we've been working with them, um, working with Black Lives Matter, because in Toronto, and I suppose in other big cities too, COVID is a very... Um, uneven has a very uneven impact that the effect is felt more strongly in racialized and poor communities so we've been working with um, Black Lives Matter and working with organizations that are fighting for police free schools so we're fighting for food security and housing security mm -hmm. and like looking at it as a sort of broader movement than just education and I really do see people joining in all of those movements, um, you know, because I think the time has a feeling of um, crisis. I mean, it really is a crisis and people feel this anxiety. And I think when you're doing something and you're kind of channeling that anxiety, it makes it feel a little bit better. I certainly find that like, I feel like I've been very busy all summer doing these yeah. things, but I don't know what else I could have been doing because otherwise I would just feel like, awful all the time and so worried yeah. and so anxious and I think a lot of people feel that and and channeling it into something concrete is really useful yeah I agree I think that I mean that's one of the things that we're being told to step up and to do you know to to work in unsafe conditions and to be and we're being mm -hmm. called heroes we're you know all of this sort of language but we're also stepping up as activists and advocates together which is really cool mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, I literally just sat on an internal panel discussion in my workplace where they said, how are you dealing with COVID-related anxiety? I said, well, I go for a run, but I also channel my anxiety into advocacy because it feels like I have some right. control over what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for speaking with I, Laura. I feel like we're definitely going to need to speak to you again in a month or so to find out how things are going. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to be yeah, a busy one. I'd love to. So, um, we'll we'll yeah. stay in touch. And our next interview is going okay. to be with um, a woman who is doing advocacy for essential caregivers. And, and we are intentionally, and our previous person that we interviewed um, is somebody who's doing activism in, in medicine for masks. So we're, we're kind of right. looking at all the different professions and all the different areas of, of um, activism across Canada. So it was 
amazing to speak to you. Thank you very, very much. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to Prescription Advocacy, co-hosted by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth and Ariel Troster, produced by Alana Stewart. You can visit us on Twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca, where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening.